Philippians 4 is where we're at. We'll do 10 through 23, and we'll just finish this thing up. Um, one of the things that I've noticed in my life, and just being in, I guess, Western culture, is that contentment is a very easy thing, a very hard thing to find. It is so easy to be discontent. I remember last summer, Matt and I went on the first Integrity Missions trip, and uh, we were able to go over and share the gospel in Africa. And it was very interesting. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm very Western. Like, I like, you know, my iPhone and instant internet and Twitter and Facebook, and I like to check ESPN stats immediately, and I want that instant gratification. And if I'm not, you know, doing that, I'm on, like, Angry Bird app, and I'm playing games. Like, I'm overly, like, want that instant gratification. And so here I am. We're about to go into a place where I know there's no Wi-Fi, there's no Starbucks where I can just sit there and on my computer and, and, and play around on the Internet. There's, no, there's none of that. And I'm, I'm right about to leave on the plane, and I'm like, they have Internet on the plane. And I'm on my phone, and I'm like, yes, I can check my email. I can, I can, I can Google North Carolina recruits that are coming up in the next couple of years, like who Roy Williams is recruiting. I can't wait to find out if he gets this pick and so I'm, I'm just really invested in this and not even thinking about, you know, I'm about to be 40,000 feet above the Atlantic Ocean and I will be literally in another country on the other side of the world in less than two days. Like I'm not even thinking about how amazing that is. So I'm sitting there going, and, and so what happens next is, you know, the plane takes off and the internet's gone. I've got to go to air, airplane mode. I don't know if you have a phone like that, but airplane mode. I'm like, oh, I'm so frustrated. I can't have internet, not to mention I'm 40,000 feet above the Atlantic Ocean. I'm in a cushion chair. And I, what I literally did, I was like, ah, oh, turn it off, put it in my pocket. And then I fold the computer down, like the, the monitor down that's right in front of me. And I can watch literally 200 movies I have access to right there for 13, 14 hours. 200 movies that I could pull from. I mean, Goonies, Weekend at Bernie's, like any old school movie that I wanted to see, that I want to remember, I can watch it right there. And I'm just like, that was my second option. Like, that was my frustrated choice. I don't have internet. I guess I'll just watch 200 movies while I'm hovering over the Atlantic Ocean, and I will be in another country in less than two days. I, I, I don't even understand my mind, like, why do I do that? Why do we do that? And, and so I, I just think what we do consistently is we end up investing our time and our energy in things that will eventually die or get old, and we, we fall in love with new things. They die and get old. And this is our Western mind. That's all we do. That's all we do. And so it used to be a point where we used to go to a video store when we wanted to get a movie. We would go to a video store, and we would get a VHS. And if it wasn't there, if, if it wasn't the new releases, we had to wait. And we go up to the lady at the counter. When is this movie going to be in? She could type it in. That's going to be in Wednesday at 12. It's supposed to be. And then you show up then. It's not there. And you're mad at the person. Like, what's that person's name? Who's got that movie, right? <laughs> and you, we're, we're really just hyper discontent now because now what we have is there's a machine, like right outside of our favorite grocery store. We can walk in, we can, we can put our ATM card in, our debit card in, and it's right there. 
at our disposal. We can have a movie instantly. And now you can go home, pull up your computer, type in Netflix.com, and you can have instant watch. You can instantly watch a movie. And what happens now, we don't step out and say, wow, that's amazing. Thank God for instant watch. When the buffer bar is slower than it should be, we freak. I mean, it's like 30, 23%, 34%, 41%, 62%. And you're just like, it's instant watch. Not watch 45 seconds later. It's instant watch. Where's my instant watch? And we get so irritated. I mean, it, it used to be also where... I lived in Rocky Mount. There was no good record stores in Rocky Mount. I would drive to Greenville to come and buy a record or an album that I really wanted to get. There used to be a great record store. I know a lot of you have never even, there's, there's a used to see thing called a record store. And you would go in and you would buy an album there. And, and now, like, my son will never experience a record store. What he'll experience is going on to iTunes and saying, that's, I'm going to listen to that song for a minute, and if I like it, I might buy it. And you can buy things instantly, instantly now, instantly. So that was, that's our world. That is what we know to be true. Everything comes at our, whenever we want it, we have instant gratification. That's it. That's who we are. So I, I don't think Christ gave his life for us so that we can fall in love with those silly things and trade them for new silly things. I just don't think he died for that reason. So this way that we think, do you think it might influence the way that we do church? You think the way that our minds are like we've built this in our minds to be so we need this instant gratification we need this to happen right now do you think that's influenced the way that we see God and we worship him rightly and so what Paul does is we are going to learn from him this morning as he wraps up this letter because what Paul is is he's a man who recklessly runs to Christ in such a way where he is content with whatever Christ gives him, even if it's not instantly, even if it doesn't come on instant watch. He's fine with it. He's fine with it. And so what we're seeing here in uh, this book, in, in chapter 4, is he wraps up loose ends. If you remember any of Paul's letters, he's really good at just wrapping up kind of a drunk drawer of things that he wants to teach the church. If you can remember back, like in 1 Corinthians, I mean, he's like, make sure these people get their money. Um, make sure uh, no one is mad at Timothy. He's a great guy. Don't, no, make sure no one hates him. Make sure, um, make sure you're being watchful. You act like men. You stand firm in the faith. Make sure, like if, if Aquila and Priscilla... Uh, show up. Um, greet them with a holy kiss. Don't make it creepy. Just kiss them in a holy way. And so he just kind of throws at you a lot of these just random thoughts that are kind of just real sporadic. And so what he does in Philippians is something really similar. He just is like, here's some last things that I want to give our church and let them know for sure that they get this. And so he does this in chapter 4, and that's what we're going to look into here in 4. Um, here's what he says. He builds this idea in four of 
rejoicing in the Lord. This is verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice. Then he goes into this concept of being content in all things, your highs and your lows. And then he tells you, in order for you to do that, you have to think about things that are pure. You have to think about things that are true. You have to think about things that are noble, uh, praiseworthy. He gives you a whole list of things to think about. And so what that tells us is this is not our first practice. This isn't what we typically are good at. We don't normally think about things that are true when we're frustrated and we're mad. We don't th- normally think about things that are true uh, or, or praiseworthy when we're, when we're in, a, in, a, um, in a traffic jam. We normally don't think about those things. So he's saying practice these things because that will help you to be content. And so what we see here next is Paul, he comes on the scene and he tells them even further how to apply this attitude of In every situation, we live our lives with contentment by practicing these things and what he says here in the next part. So look, look what he says here in verse 10 and 11. He says this, I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. For you were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned that in every situation I am to be what? Content. So what you see in 10 years later, Paul plants this church. He plants the gospel in this church. He raises up solid leaders. This is a maturing body of Christ. And he's going to all of these places. He goes to Athens. He goes to Corinth. I mean, all of these things are happening to Paul as he goes and he leaves this church. And what happens consistently is this church is very, very dear to his heart. Even when he's in Athens, he's being supported and encouraged by this church. They had no opportunity, meaning there were some times where they were trying to help him in his travels, but they couldn't. They couldn't locate him. I mean, it's kind of hard to locate a guy who gets shipwrecked constantly, who's in prison constantly. But Paul, he is in Athens, for instance, and he, Paul's a really smart guy. I mean, he may be one of the smartest people who's ever lived. Paul goes to Athens begins to preach the gospel, and they laugh at him. They mock him. But what does Paul have to lean on? He's got this encouraging body of believers in Philippi who's sending him money, who's writing him letters of encouragement, who's building him up, and that's something every single one of us needs. And we're going to hit that in a moment. So what he does is he encourages them by saying, be content in all things. He's telling this church to be content, the same church that has sent him money and encouraging letters, he's telling them, I've learned to be content, and so do you, and so do you. So he, he unpacks this idea a little bit. Even in the Greek language, the idea of learn to be content, one thing that we can get from that is this. He's talking intellectually, we learn to be content. That means we know Scripture, we know what Scripture teaches, we've looked at the rules and said, okay, God is better than these things. Like Paul would have actually read Habakkuk 3, 17 through 19. I'll read this for you. This is what Paul would have understood to be content. This is how Paul would have intellectually understood contentment. He would have read Habakkuk 3, 17 through 19. It says, Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor the fruit on the vines, the the produce of the olive fail, and the fields uh, yield no flood, food rather, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there will be no herds in the stalls. Yet, so I don't have any of that stuff. I don't have anything there that the world has to offer. Yet, 
I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places. So yes, intellectually, Paul understood God is better than all of these things. So I I can't put my hope and my trust in things that bring me instant gratification or satisfaction. He can't do that. So Paul's saying, I have to trust and know Christ intimately. And he understood this intellectually, but he also goes further in verse 12. Look, Look at what he says in verse 12. I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound in every, in any and every circumstance. I've learned the, what, secret of facing plenty and hungry, hunger, abundance, and need. So Paul understands that intellectually, yes. He knows the Bible says God is better than all of these things. But he also has experienced what it means to be content. He's also been put in the ringer in such a way that, yes... I need to be content because this is what God has put me in. And I think what we do when we hear a message about contentment, we always think about, well, oh, okay, this means that when things are bad, I just need to be okay with it. Like if I get in a car wreck, I just need to get out and sing a praise song and be fine with it. Or this is the part where you dog rich people. Like I always feel really bad for wealthy Christians because they just never get a break. Because, I mean, the whole eye needle thing, they hear that, and then Sunday they get out, and they're like, you know, they walk in the parking lot, and they want to avoid everybody. They're like, beep, beep, you know, get in their car. And it just feel really bad for rich people sometimes because they just never get a break. And so what he's, he's not saying rich people are bad, poor people are good. He's not saying that at all because I think what we do is we tend to make a theology around poverty, you know, poverty equals holiness. Or rich, you know, wealth equals evil. And that's not biblical. That's not what he's saying at all. Because notice the contrast of what he's saying. Here's the examples. He's saying, God's given me abundance, and then I've been really poor. I've been well-fed, and then I've been very hungry. What he's saying is, I've had all of these things, and I never sold out. If you can remember back when Paul planted this church in Acts, Paul plants this church at a, a, really a women's Bible study. It's like a Beth Moore Bible study. Paul shows up. He shows them the gospel. And this rich woman was there, Lydia. And Lydia owns all of these houses. She sells, she's in the fashion industry. She's like devil wears Prada. And he builds this relationship with her. She becomes one of the first, uh, she may have already been a convert, but she, she, she literally becomes the first core group of Paul, a rich lady in the beginning of a church plant that just doesn't happen. Paul stays at her house. Like, she's got servants and butlers. She maybe even had a cook. I mean, you can imagine, like, she, he's in this beautiful home where he's getting filet mignon and really great wine and Great imported beer, maybe. Like, I'm just speculating, right? <laughs> and cigars. I mean, so he's just, he's going on and on, and he's got this lifestyle. And then literally, the next day, he leaves. He drives out a, a demon out of a crazy girl. He gets thrown in prison. And he's content in both places. Equally content in both places. So, yeah, he's had abundance He's had poverty, but he still says, I'm content, 
and all of those things. I, I think what we can do is we can get a lot of things and still want more. That's the contentment issue. We can win the lottery and say, I want more. I want more. Or I'm going to spend it in this way where it doesn't glorify God. I'm going to use it for this purpose. Or we can get poor and poverty. And, and, and I, this is why I don't think poverty equals holiness. Because some of the most poorest people are the most greediest people in the war, world. So we can just fall in love and just be like, I'm mad at you, God. You didn't give me this. Like the cross of Christ isn't enough. And so what I, what I think he's saying is this. If I'm wealthy... Praise God. I'm going to give and give and give to build his kingdom and to build his glory. I'm going to use this money to build his church so that the gospel can be proclaimed rightly. If if I'm poor, praise God. I'm going to rely on him to meet my needs. I'm going to rely on him to continue in my ministry. I'm going to praise his name despite of what he gives me. In every circumstance, I've learned the secret of being content in my highs and in my lows, in my poverty and in my wealth, I will still praise Christ. I will still give him the credit. I will still trust him. And that's what it means to be content in all things. So in other words, if you're liked or you're hated, if you are healthy or you're sick, if everything in your life goes right or if everything in your life goes wrong, he's telling you, trust Christ. Be content. And what Christ gives you. When was the last high point that you had in your life? You sat back and said, thank you, Lord. Thank you for what you've given me. I'm going to use the resources and this high point in my life to bring you all the glory. When was your last low point? You stopped, stepped back and said, thank you, Lord. I'm going to use this time to trust you, and rely on you to supply my needs. When was that last time? Because this is Paul. This is Paul recklessly running after Christ, despite of circumstances, saying, I'm going to trust you. And I'm not going to sell out if I get rich. And I'm not going to be angry and bitter if I'm poor. I'm just going to trust you. I'm just going to trust you. You guys challenged? It's really quiet in here. So I'm assuming that you're, you're very challenged and you're just thinking about this stuff. All right? What you see next is this. Paul stops just for a moment. Moment. It's like this encouragement stuff is good. I mean, I just love building this church up and I'm giving them contentment. And then he thought, stops and thinks, how can, I, how can I help Christian Olympians? And what's a good way that I can really encourage Christian athletes who want to show off my glory? So he says, I know what I'll say. I'll say this. I can do All things through Christ who gives me strength. Christian athletes, for years, we can now look to a verse that when a youngster looks up to a future NBA player that's a Christian, and when he dunks the ball, we can say, oh, what a wonderful Savior. Right? Can I submit to you? It's probably not what he's talking about, all right? He's probably not going, I know how to encourage Christian Olympians. I know how to encourage a young boy who wants to hit the ball in the little league playground and show all his friends how good God is by how hard he hits it. And I'm going to show him, and when he hits that home run, he can just look and say, I can do all things through Christ that gives me strength. You better worship God if you want to hit home runs, right? (laughs) Let me submit to you that it's probably not the case. No, it's not the case, all right? It's nothing to do 
with Christian athletes. It's nothing to do with you saying, oh, I want to be a CEO. I'm going to be a CEO of a company, and I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. You can't stop me. This verse has nothing to do with you can do whatever you want. It has nothing to do with that. Paul's saying, listen, if you are a CEO, you can't boast in that alone. And you can't sell out to the gospel for you being a CEO. If you do have the ability to dunk a basketball, you cannot sell out. And then what he says, this is the same thing. If you are not the CEO, and if you don't dunk a basketball, you don't sell out. And you're not angry and bitter at God. He's saying, be content. Whether what God gives you this job or he doesn't, be content. It's nothing to do with you doing whatever you want. It's about you trusting him and saying, God is going to give me the strength to get through whatever he hands me. He will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you can bear, right? It's the same principle, same concept. I'm going to trust you. This isn't prosperity nonsense of if I trust him, he's going to give me this car. If I do my quiet time, I'm going to get a Mercedes. And if I, if I pray in this way, he's going to give me this size house. That is prosperity nonsense. He's saying, no, despite of what I give you, I've given you enough by giving you the cross of Christ. Despite of what I give you, you're just going to trust me with whatever hand you get dealt so, how do we gauge our contentment? I mean, I'm thinking about this as I'm even speaking it, and I'm like, I'm not content. I'm not content. So how do I gauge whether I am or not? How do, I, how do, how do you gauge this morning whether or not you're content? I think what Paul does in his next instructions is really, really helpful. Look at verse 14. It says, Yet it was kind of you, to share my trouble, and you Philippians yourself know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I when I left Macedonia, no church entered a partnership into entered into a partnership with me in giving and receiving, except only you. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me, uh, you sent help for me. Um, the needs once again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts that you sent me, the fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and his glory to our God and our Father of glory forever and ever. Amen. How do we gauge our contentment? If you notice two things that I just want to point out in this body. So we can get it intellectually through knowing the scriptures. We can get it through experience, through whatever God hands us. We're just going to love Christ um, and, and run to him as hard as we can. If we're wealthy or we're in poverty, we're going to run hard after him. And I think there's two ways we can really gauge this. The first one we'll see in this life of the church. Notice their generosity. They gave generously. So how do we gauge our contentment? Is ask ourselves, do we give generously? Do we give Generously. I mean, if you look at verse 18, he says, I have received full payment and more. He said, your gift to me, your financial giving, it really is a fragrant 
offering to God. It's, accept, it's an offering that is a sacrificial and acceptable. He says it's pleasing to God. I mean, nowhere else do I see Paul use this language about giving in the way that he does to the church of Philippi. Nowhere else. I mean, the church of Corinth was a very giving church as well. But this, he's saying, fragrant offering, acceptable to God. This is what he says. He says, and then in verse 19, notice the contrast before 18 and 19. In 19, he says this, and my God will supply every need of yours. So in other words, this church is giving sacrificially in such a way that even in their need, they're still helping the ministry. They're still giving generously. So you're saying, oh, these people aren't rich? No, these people are not rich. They're not rich. I mean, even if you look at like 2 Corinthians 8, 1 through 3, I'm, let me just show you some wonderful verses. 2 Corinthians 8, 1 through 3, it says, We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. That's the church of Philippi. It's in Macedonia. So he's referring to this body. He says, for in severe test of affliction, their abundance. So in their severe test, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their what? Their means. As I can testify. And beyond their means on their own accord. So these people are not wealthy. These people are being persecuted for the sake of the gospel. And they're being literally stripped of even the ability to have a job. And they are still giving. They're being taxed by a very vicious governmental system. And they are still giving violently. And that's what the heart of this church is. And they're not boneheaded about it. They're still supplying the needs of their families. They're still doing the work of the gospel. But they're also giving generously and sacrificially. I mean, I get so tired of when I go to uh, meet a bunch of pastors in another area. And they say, and typically of like older, more traditional churches, they'll say, oh, you're, you're ECU? I'm like, well, I'm in Greenville, you know, EC's in Greenville, you know. Oh, okay, yeah. So you have a lot of college students in your church? I'm like, yeah, we do have a lot of college students, young professionals, young families. How's your giving? It's like the first thing that, I mean, you know, not, how's it going? Like, I bet your offerings are low, right? You know, I'm just like, I bet your fellowship hall smells like formaldehyde. There, you know, I said it, you know. And I, I just get so tired of hearing that. And, and I want to be able to say, that's not an issue. It's not an issue. Our young families, our young professionals, our college students, they give sacrificially because they love and they get the gospel. And that, that's not my motivation, like, that I want you to give so I can show them. Um, <laughs> but if we really, truly love and get the gospel and we get contentment, we give sacrificially. And I don't, I'm not saying, like, 10%. I don't think we need to be binded by a legalistic Old Testament contract. And I mean, we believe, like honestly, we, we did a, a great blog. Uh, Jake did a great blog on tithing this week. You can go to our website and look at it. We don't think that the tithe is the necessary means that we give. People gave a tithe in the Old Testament because they didn't have the Holy Spirit. So they, they wouldn't give 10% unless he said 10%. We 
are in the new covenant. We have made a covenant with Christ because he gave his life for us on a bloody cross. And we can give everything to him. So you even say, well, tithing's a good place to start. It is a good place to start, but a better place to start is the cross where he's given everything to us on the cross. And so we respond by giving everything to him because we're grateful and our gratitude is focused only on him. So if you're a college student, give generously. If you're a young professional, give generously. If you are a married couple, give generously. That's the scriptural mandate for you to give. Give because you love the gospel. Right? Give because you love the gospel. And it's a response of our contentment. It's a, it shows whether or not we're content because it shows I'm thankful for what God's given me. I'm not going to love my wallet and my possessions and my trinkets more than I love Christ. I'm going to give you everything because I love you that much. That's biblical giving. That's biblical giving. And it shows our love for Christ on how we give. I don't want you to leave and just think, oh, I know what I'll do. I'll be more content and I'll be more content by giving. I know giving just demonstrates that. It's just an, it just shows how we're content. Because if you're, if you're not content, then that means you're clinging on to things other than Christ. If you're content, that means you're saying, you can have everything. It's yours. You can have everything. It's yours. So, Jesus even says something more challenging than Paul. He just says it really clear. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. I'm challenged by that. He's like, where's your contentment? Is it in the things of the world or is it in me alone? How you show your giving shows where your heart is and your mind and your heart is fixated on the gospel. So they gave generously, but they also, they lived sacrificially. Look in verse 21 through 23. He says, Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ will be with you in spirit. I love the little, he throws it in at the end, especially those of Caesar's household. Paul is chained to a Roman soldier as he's penning this letter. He's writing constantly about you being content in Christ and really loving Christ more than anything. And he's saying that while he is chained to a Roman soldier. And so this is what would happen. And these Roman soldiers were people in Caesar's household. So what you would have is maybe, I'm just going to speculate, maybe 50 Roman soldiers that would go on different shifts. Oh man, have you, you know, that Paul guy is a real, I mean, you better watch out. When you get chained to him, you better be let, ready to listen. A, he was going to tell you a lot about Jesus. It's always going to talk about is what Christ did for him and how Christ died on the cross and how Christ rose from the grave and you need to follow him and you need to worship him and you need to rejoice in him and that's all you're going to hear. And so every single Roman soldier, five hours here, five hours there, a new shift comes in, a new shift comes in, a new shift comes in. And what would happen is the gospel would take root in Caesar's household where all of these men were stationed and they would become believers in Christ. 
And what Paul is seeing happen here is the gospel has created really a culture around Paul. And if we're really true believers in Christ, and we're really on-mission disciples, the gospel will, will create a culture around us. You'll begin to see people following Christ, and it will build around you. And you'll see that person got saved, that person got saved, and now they're radically running toward Christ. And see, this is what happened in Paul. So Paul's like, hey, hope you guys are doing well. Be content in all things. Rejoice. And again, I say rejoice. Um, he, will, he will get you to the end. Persevere. And your buddies around me at Caesar's household, they said hello. They're grateful for the gifts that you've given me because it also helps them continue in the work of the gospel. These new converts continue in the work of the gospel. There's something profound about the love that binds believers together. Because you think about, you would have these people who would be violent against Christ, and now they're friends with these people in, from Rome to Philippi, these people who are really persecuting Christians, become believers, and now they're friends with these people in Philippi. And there's something really profound about how the gospel binds us together. It's the same love that when Christ was on the cross and his enemies mocked him, he prayed for them. It's the same love. That's the same love that binds believers together. That When I go on the other side of the world to Africa or to Asia, or when some of you will go wherever you go this summer, to Brazil or Belize or wherever you go this summer, the gospel will bind you together. When you go and you meet another believer, the gospel does that. That same love that Christ had on the cross toward those who mocked him when he prayed for them. So what Paul wants to see happen, and what he continues to talk about, is this concept in the body of Christ a partnership and fellowship. Partnership is, we looked at the word koinonia, it's fellowship. It means something more than just the fellowship hall or just the Bible study that we create. It means something deep and intimate, and it's the love of Christ that binds us together. It's beautiful when I can say, I'm going to put you before myself. It's beautiful that when we can look at each other and say, let's, let's outdo one another in honor and serving. Let's outdo one another because it glorifies Christ is something beautiful with that. And there's something that also challenges us when we're around other believers that pushes us to be more content in Christ. My goal at being a part of the body of Christ is to push you to look more like Christ. And you're to push me to look more like Christ. And my satisfaction and my affections are all stirred in him. And that's the beauty of the body. And that was what will help us be content. That also will show us how content we are. Because if you're discontent and your contentment is not on Christ, you don't want anything to do with the body. You want to be isolated. And see, this is what we see in our culture. Our culture is all about this rugged individualism that says, I don't need anybody in my life. I don't need anyone speaking into my life. I don't need anyone telling me about Jesus. I don't need that. I'm fine. I worship God my own way in the privacy of my own home. I'll just come on a Sunday morning. That's fine. I don't need to know anybody. Paul's saying no. 
If you really want to understand contentment, you've got to understand the, the love that binds believers together, and you've got to understand generosity within the body of Christ that shows and displays it. I love what Steve Timmons, Timmons says about this. He says, The gospel is about a king who died to rescue people who would reveal his character by their shared lives. The gospel is this, that Christ came, lived a humble life, lived a perfect, sinless life. He claimed to be God because he is God. He was the exact imprint of the nature of Christ. That's what Philippians says. He gave himself on the cross for us, for the glory of God. He took on all of our sins. He died in our place as a substitute for our sins. Through that, he was buried in three days. He rose again, conquering the penalty of Satan, sin, and death. Because of that, we can find satisfaction and joy in knowing him where he can make us content. He can make us satisfied. He is our crown, and we rest in him. That's the gospel. How does God demonstrate this love now? He does it through the body of Christ that is bound together, that is generous to each other, and we're satisfied in him. So my question this morning is this. Are you satisfied in him? Is he enough? Or have you added other things to the gospel and said, yeah, he's good, I just need other things. If I just had this one thing, I would be better at loving him more. If I had this one thing, I'd be better at loving my spouse more. If I had this one thing, I'd be better at loving my neighbors more. And that's not what he's saying. He's saying he's the treasure. He's the prize. Run hard after him. So there's one message I could just show you in all of Philippians. Run hard after him. Let your affections be stirred in him, and he's going to get you through it. Do you trust him? Let's pray.